the biggest piece of advice is choose your investors wisely. Oh yeah. How does that fit in to a cohesive, larger vision We will always have enough cash around. Strictly business. Business. Hi, finance leaders, and welcome to CFO Year, your new favorite finance podcast. I'm Patrick, and I talk to finance executives from all over the world to learn what makes them tick. In this episode, we're bringing you a live recording from our CFO Connect Summit in September 2021. We were lucky enough to have a fireside chat with Alka Tandon, Senior Vice President of Finance and Strategic Programs at Gainsight. As Alka explains, Gainsight pretty much invented customer success as we know it today. In the process, it became a unicorn and was acquired in 2020 for more than $1 billion. We talked about that big acquisition, bottom-up financial planning, the human-first leadership movement, and the moment where she realized she had to work in tech. Plus, we answered lots of audience questions on a wide range of topics. In short, this was an outstanding conversation. Today's episode is brought to you by Spendesk, the all-in-one spending solution that puts finance teams in control with 100% visibility into company spend. And by CFO Connect, a global community for finance leaders. Join us at cfoconnect.eu and you can email podcast at cfoconnect.eu with any questions or feedback. The story really starts with, you know, my parents who were, you know, two immigrants and, and they came from India back in the 70s. My father um, was a, uh, got his, both his master's and his PhD in engineering. Um, and they came here sort of for the dream, heard about a place called Silicon Valley and settled here. They still often talk about my father interviewing my mother sitting, you know, in the car because they really sort of came with no with nothing. So I really grew up in Silicon Valley. You know, I always joke that um, I'm one of the unicorns because there's not many of us who actually grew up here and stayed here. But I really grew up with it and at a very young age just sort of understood the power of it. I still remember my father coming with his um, telling me he had a surprise for me and it was a semiconductor wafer. And of course, you know, only I would be excited about something like that. But, you know, it coincided with um, the time that we just got computers in our school. And he explained to me that these were powering the computers and computers back then were like magic. And I sort of consider that's where I really started loving, you know, this um, this industry because I, I, I saw the power of it. Um, and over time I had other family members come and, and most of them are in the tech industry. Um, and so that's really where my love of the industry started. And so over 20 years later, I'm still here and still, excited about it and still amazed at what it's done um, in the world. Fantastic. And by today, we mean you are the Senior Vice President of Finance and Strategic Programs at yeah. Gainsight. Um, right. Perhaps you could take us through, I don't know, you could maybe the full journey or perhaps just the most recent, yeah. um, what brings you to that role specifically? Yeah. So I actually, I knew, um, I, I loved my father, but I knew I wasn't going to be an engineer. And so I mm -hmm. knew that I really enjoyed the business side of things. And my mother was a businesswoman as well. So I had sort of watched her. So I actually started my career in investment banking, uh, and which was a great way to just learn a lot. Um, went to business school and decided to be in operations. 
uh, started actually in media and, and worked in a variety of different roles uh, and then decided that I really wanted to go into um, SaaS and saw the power of it as a business um, and landed about Gainsight about two and a half years ago um, and helped scale the company. Um, and we uh, last year announced uh, a majority investment um, by Vista, which we were all very excited about. So it's been quite a journey. Um, and Gainsight is uh, very special because it actually started a customer success industry. And so to be part of a journey of a company um, that has scaled the way it has, but also created an industry um, has been um, a very incredible journey. And I mean, there's there's more to mergers and acquisitions and, and big business moves than the money number, but it yeah. was a pretty juicy number, uh, 1.1 billion, which makes you a double unicorn, I guess, because you were already a unicorn, mm -hmm. as you mentioned. How does that feel? Yes, um, it well feels great. It, 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 certainly, it certainly feels great. You know, it was a um, I'll say a personal goal of mine. There is something very special about that number. But what made it incredibly special was that you know you sort of essentially at that sort of uh, that sort of a number, which was you know basically a majority investment by by Vista, who is our current investment partner. Um, it was real validation of um, not just the business, but also the industry. And so our founders and our CEO, um, who have been, who's been with the company pretty much since inception, really created this industry. So it was incredible validation, um, especially to be correct, to be done by someone like Vista, um, that this industry is here to stay, that it's incredibly valuable. We knew it was, but to have someone come in as sort of a third party and give sort of their stamp. Um, gave us incredible validation. What do you, I mean, what do, specifically what do we mean by creating the industry? Because obviously you, we're talking customer success and customer service has been around for as long as there have been customers. So what do we mean by creating the customer success industry? Yeah, so basically our software helps you track current customers and the health of customers um, as soon as it becomes a customer and through the lifetime that it becomes a customer. And so, yes, there, there, we definitely, there was support, but we basically taken the concept and basically said, okay, every, the entire company should be sort of aligned around the customer and be customer centric. Um, and so that's what I mean by sort of creating the concept where it's not just a support function now, but it's sort of the central place for everyone, everyone in the company to um, gather around and really sort of focus on. Um, and with that, uh, you know, we've also created a, sort of created sort of benchmarks and created sort of a system around that. And um, and it, it works. You know, what we found is we've actually um, there's actually a study you can actually go on our website and where the software equity group where they looked at 90 public companies and saw that valuations um, increase when you sort of focus on retaining your current customers um, mm -hmm. as well as selling more to them. And, and so, you know, we know it works, but it, it took a little while for everyone to sort of catch up. I think you're right. That, that, that is something that people are really figuring out or companies are really figuring out today that customer, customer obsession is the other kind of catchphrase yeah. or the, the phrase that gets thrown around a lot. Because um, people, people are figuring out that exactly as you said, Financially, it makes so much more sense to keep customers for longer and to keep them happy than to always be thinking about the next customer. Yes, financially, because it takes um, a lot more money to get a new customer. So you want to always keep doing that. 
but if you're able to keep your customers um, and sort of and help grow them and grow the revenue, you, you, you need to have basically both, but it is cheaper to do that. So um, yes, and, and the markets agree. To go back to the investment for a moment, because I think people still want to know more about that. Have things changed much since, uh, I guess you, uh, sorry, I forgot the date, but it was the, towards the end of 2020. It was December 2020, yes. December 2020, okay. So, so nine months, 10 months. Uh, have things changed? Is it still the same company? I would like to, I'd like to think it's better, actually. You know, I think it's been um, an incredible partnership for us. You know, I can tell you when it announced, I got texts from ex-colleagues, business school friends, all saying, you know, congratulations on Vista in, in particular. And so for those that don't know, you know, Vista has about $80 billion um, in assets. If you add them all up, they're probably the fourth or fifth um, largest software company, you know, in the world, depending upon the day. And so what they, it, but it's been a partnership. I would say it's been a true partnership. And what I mean by that is they have brought um, a lot of their um, ideas and operational rigor that they've learned um, across, you know, their portfolio because um, they are very successful at what they do um, in investing companies. And, you know, we've been able to bring things to the table as well, particularly around um, educating um, everybody on customer success and the best way to do it, which of course helps them across their portfolio. Um, but, you know, in the day to day, it, it really truly hasn't changed. You know, we are still focused on all the same things. We're still focused on growth, growing new customers, as well as retaining and, and doing the best um, with our current customers. So, I, you know, on the day to day, we're still really just focused on the fundamentals of the business. Now we just have partners where we can bounce things off of. Um, and so that makes it incredibly valuable. Do you think any of that dynamic is due to the fact that it's that Vista is an investment firm and has made an investment, whereas obviously a lot of merger and acquisitions are companies being absorbed into larger companies and having to actually fit product-wise? Yes. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's two really different scenarios. You know, mm. Vista is really, as we are, really focused on creating value um, for the company. And so that's a very different lens than all of a sudden you're one of now maybe many products in a yeah. what I'll call a strategic acquisition. So everyone is still very focused on creating value. And then therefore, um, it, it definitely takes a different lens. Mm. Okay. And then uh, thinking back, maybe even a bit before um, the investment, can you identify any sort of specific keys to, to growing and scaling Gainsight so successfully? So when you are a leader in, in the industry, you know, it's um, it's definitely there's a cost to that. You know, we, we do mm. conferences like this and which which is great. We do a pulse conference. We have um, I think we had over you know, 10,000 people attend just our last year. Um, so there is a certain cost to it. But because when you're a leader and you're creating the benchmarks and you've created the industry, people come to you and mm. you always yeah. usually have a seat at the table. So that's definitely you know, strategy once you're, once you're sort of just when you're basically the leader and you're, you're creating it. Um, other than that, you know, I, I really think it's just honestly fundamentals. So when you're early in a company, you're looking at total addressable market, you're looking at product market fit. And then as you start scaling, you look at, you know, your go-to-market strategy. And, mm -hmm. um, and so we certainly were looking at looking at different verticals, um, as well as um, different geos um, and creating a strategy around that. 
Um, and then also every SaaS company at some point really needs to look at being multi-product. You know, we did that actually through um, initially through an acquisition, mm -hmm. our PX, which is our product ex experience product. Um, so, but there are of course many ways to do it. And, and so that definitely, I mean, I think those are end of the day, it's, it's sort of back to fundamentals, you know, whether you're a leader or not. How did you personally find the investment process? It must, it, it can only have been stressful. I'm sure. It was stressful and it was exciting at, yeah. at the, at the same time, you know, um, you know, usually I, I've done a lot of M&A. I started my career in M&A and I would say nearly every operational role, you know, I've done, I've done it, but this one was certainly, you know, special because I was part of scaling it and, you know, part of, um, you know, the exec team at that time. So I, uh, what normally happens in a process like that is everyone just drops what they're doing um, and really just focuses on, on the acquisitions, especially at the senior levels. And then we just figure out who needs to be in the tent, so to say, so to speak. And so typically finance and accounting is the heart of it. And we're running the due diligence process. And this was um, this was the way this one happened, too. It actually ends up being, I would say, an incredible bonding experience for the team as well. We're all working for the same goal. So, yes, you're not sleeping a lot because you're working a lot, but you're also because you're just excited. And so, um, yes, yeah, stressful, but a lot of excitement with it, too. And as a as a leader at the company, does it bring you closer as well to the other leadership? Are you, you you have to, I imagine, become much more aligned on the company message, the growth trajectory, why you're being, uh, why you're interested in investment, etc. Yes, you get to know each other very quickly. It's relationship by fire for sure. You know, so um, and uh, and yeah, so it sort of goes both goes both ways. You know, they're getting to know us. We're getting to sort of know them as well. Mm. Um, so it is, I, I would say it's sort of a, a very quick bonding experience, but one that's sort of gratifying. And then, you know, you continue to sort of get to know each other afterwards. Think you have company cash under control? You may have a process to pay people back, but company spending is so much more than expense claims. Spendesk gives you one system to replace your old-fashioned company cards, track online payments easily, and process supplier invoices faster than ever. Whether you're a growing startup or you've been doing this for decades, it's never too late to upgrade. Graduate from basic expenses to spend management today. Try Spendesk. But I want to talk um, more about finance strategy because you spoke to CFO Connect last year, I believe, and at the time you were very focused on bottom-up financial analysis. That was the expression that you used. Could you, could you, what does that mean? Could you tell us what bottom-up financial analysis is and why it's so valuable? Yeah, so bottoms up, and, and I'll introduce another term, which is called zero-based budgeting. I, I would say they're very similar. Mm -hmm. which is you're really looking at every single um, line item line item as you are bottoms up means you're looking at every single line item as you're doing your budget zero based budgeting is even if you have a prior budget you're sort of you still start every um, year kind of start you start from scratch why it's important and you know either what you know zero based budgeting is basically a subset of bottoms up why it's important is uh because I really think it really helps you look at the business with fresh eyes. 
um, every year. And especially when you're in an industry like technology where things are just constantly changing, it's really helpful to really ask the questions, you know, is this still needed? Mm. What, why is it useful? Are there better, better vendors or better, um, better tools out there, for example, if we're looking at, you know, a software cost. Um, so I think asking sort of those questions, yes, it takes a little bit longer. It's, it's much easier to just take last year's budget and say, what more, you know, what more do you need as we're mm-hmm. growing? But I think there's, um, it really brings in a certain amount of strategy to ask the interesting questions where everybody can really think through. And what ends up happening is I think you just get a budget that is uh, much more solid based on fundamentals, um, but also just much more efficient. You're really using your capital very efficiently. So um, yes, we continue to do it um, and we do it. Um, we're actually starting our planning cycle right now. Um, and um, it ends up being an interesting process and a good dialogue. Mm. Just to be very clear on that, the idea is that we are, you are using the real financial data that you have to make the next set of decisions rather than I suppose relying more on the projections that you made 12 months ago for the next three years and seeing where you are in that uh, projection. Yeah. We're always looking at real-time data because, mm. uh, again, in, in a in a tech industry, we saw it. We saw it during COVID, right? Things. I mean, that was a very extreme version. Things changed very rapidly, and then we've seen, you know, this year, um, SaaS companies have done actually quite well. So we're seeing it on um, in a different way, where we're actually having to invest more um, as we continue to exhibit, you know, incredible growth. Mm. So always look at the most recent data. Right. And so then obviously, I guess that suggests that you need to have real time access to all that data. And is that the biggest hurdle, the biggest challenge if you want to be bottoms up in terms of your financial analysis? You know, it could be depending upon your systems. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, for us, I wouldn't say that is the biggest challenge. I think, you know, for us, it's just it takes some time. And it takes a lot of sort of dialogue. And sometimes we have to ask, I think, some difficult questions and sometimes Mm. it can even be controversial. And I think, but it's in those dialogues that I think where actually great decisions I think can be made. Um, It's just, it's actually, I think it's a mind, the mindset's always easier to sort of stay with what you're doing. And I, and I find actually that um, the most interesting and at times kind of challenging process. Do you have a large FP&A team as a result of this or as a way to achieve this? You know, I would say they are we're probably good size at the moment. Um, it is global, though. So, you know, we have a huge presence in India. So we do have mm-hmm. some um, and, and we are growing that presence, you know, in India in terms of FP&A. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I would say, you know, we've got um, we've got some, I have some great leaders um, at FP&A as well as some junior people as well. Uh, but I wouldn't say it's extraordinarily large. Um, of course, as we get bigger, we're going to have to continue to do um, to do our analysis. And what I love about our FP&A team is not only are they great, just great at budgeting, but they really do help develop um, just analytical models around the business. So they are true business partners. And so, and I think that's really what great FP&A teams do. They're they're not just doing the budgeting, but they're really building the analytics around um, key decision-making and as well as just um, the operations around the business. So they do both. Mm. I'm sure everybody would love to know what the finance team structure is in general, who's in the team, what kind of units you have. Um, Yeah. yeah, And and were you a part of building the team as well? I I mean, I know it's to some extent. Yeah. Okay. So maybe you could take us through 
yeah. putting it together? So I find finance teams are formed two ways. And I've actually, I've actually had both types of teams. Either they sort of follow um, a PL closely, meaning that someone really owns the revenue lines and, and the top lines, and then the other people own um, expense lines. And then I've also seen it where people will actually um, own lines of businesses. So that really works well if you have GMs for like different product lines, and then they mm. become sort of like mini CFOs. Um, currently, and currently the way we're structured is, um, is we have someone who basically runs corporate, runs the total, total P&L. And then I've got um, a couple other people basically um, owning different expense departments um, mm. because that's the way our org is structured. I wouldn't be surprised as we continue to get bigger and we sort of, we essentially have sort of GMs of businesses because that usually happens when you're much bigger that mm. we, there will come a point where I'll just need to have um, each of them be sort of own a line of business and own the full P&L. Um, so yeah, so that's how we're currently structured. I think both work. There's pros and cons to each. Nice. Okay. Uh, again, in that previous um, conversation you had with us uh, last year, you mentioned defining or the importance of defining your vital metrics was the expression you used. What are your vital metrics? Could you talk us through that, please? Yes. You know, there's a lot of numbers you can run. So it's just important to know um, which ones to focus on. Um, we also have the term North Star metric, which is you know the most important one as well. So for us, um, it's, it's still all around top line growth. And even if you look at public company comparables, um, they are valued on top line growth. So that means looking at revenue and looking at revenue growth. Um, for private companies, that means ARR growth. That's something that's not usually published, but understanding sort of your waterfall. And what goes into both of those is um, GRR, gross renewal rate, which is, of course, very near and dear to Gainsight because that's what our product um, helps with, as well as um, NRR, so um, net retention, which includes um, upsell as well. So what, what more you're selling to serve current customers and new bookings. So we're really focused on those on a regular basis. We do look at profitability as well. Mm -hmm. There's a very popular metric called um, Rule 40, which basically takes top line growth and profitability. And if both, both of those equal 40, 40%, it means you're running a very efficient um, company. So we, we do track that as well. Uh, and then, of course, each department has their own metrics. So, for example, customer success, um, we look at we look at both, lead, by the way, leading and lagging indicators and metrics. So lagging indicators for customer success are um, the ones I just mentioned, GRR and NDR. But leading indicators would be things like adoption percentage and NPS, um, as well as verifiable outcomes. So we have, um, and you can find those, we've got a great blog on our website that kind of details like what each of these metrics mean. Um, so I would encourage everybody to just take a look. So, uh, so we look at we look at both. So we definitely look at our vital metrics as a company that I'm focused on, but mm -hmm. we do dive deep um, into uh, department specific metrics too. Fantastic. Just while we're here talking nuts and bolts, um, numbers and things, we had a question from Laurent about the zero based budget um, approach. And the question is, how do you actually get started? Do you start from scratch, even including the people and personnel costs? I would say even people and personnel, you know, um, and obviously we have to be very, you know, sensitive and respectful. So I think it's it's something that's, um, 
we're be very careful, like, you know, with who's in that, in that room for sure. Mm. Um, but yes, I think you absolutely include those. And again, the goal is just to oftentimes, you know, sometimes we need to just shift, you know, people like, I, I think one thing Gainsight does really well is actually allows the opportunity for people to try new things. It's something that employees say they really love actually about our company. So it doesn't have to be, I would say, controversial conversation, you know, and just because you're looking at it and discussing it doesn't mean you're going to do much, you know, I think action comes mm. later. So absolutely. I, I, I would certainly start, you know, you could certainly discuss personnel. And then I think it's literally just going through each one of the items and just having sort of a discussion. I, you can certainly use um, last year as um, a discussion point too, if that seems to be easier. But I think, you know, having, I, like we can talk about Teeny, for example, you know, next year, I think it starts, we starts the discussion of, okay, will people start traveling? What's mm. our stance on it? Um, and um, what do we actually want? Do we want employees now in this new world to travel as much as they did two years ago? So you start really, as you're talking about each of these, you really start thinking about what's your stance and your strategy on each of these items. And it kind of just forces you to think a little bit more critically. And just finally, before we move on to some other topics, what are the kinds of challenges you're thinking about at the moment? What are you focused on um, you know, as, as the leader of the finance team? So I think right now, you know, I think we're really, as we kind of think through the next couple of years of sort of where we want to go, um, we're really just focused on actually just, it's a lot of fine tuning at this point. You know, we have the basics, but it's, you know, our, our systems, well, you know, do we have the right systems? Mm. Um, do we need to sort of upgrade our systems? I think that's a big one. I think the same thing on processes. Let's, let's fine tune this. Um, and so I would say it's really, and then, and then staffing, you know, we talked a little bit about staffing, like, do we have the right org in place as we sort of continue to grow, particularly in this environment where, um, recruiting is, um, I would say very competitive. So, mm. um, so just thinking a little bit ahead of those types of things and like where we want to be in, not just like in the next year, but really like in two years, um, because things move very fast. So those are kind of the things that we're really focused on. Is it fair to, to say that, that those, a lot of those challenges are actually pretty evergreen? I mean, uh, even yeah. as the, I mean, obviously the scale of them will be different now and, and uh, you know, yeah, the scale yeah. of them will be different, but you may have had similar challenges two years ago. We're just talking at a different level today. I think that's exactly right. I think that's, yeah. I think that's exactly right. I think the, the one thing is, you know, I think GNA as a group tends to be um, invested a little bit less as in when you're sort of early in the company, you're really focused mm. on product and then you're focused on go to market. So I think um, in that way, um, we, I think, you know, as you get kind of start scaling, you really have to focus on GNA, the GNA team and like, okay, it's time to sort of really focus on investing here. If you're enjoying this conversation, then you've got to check out CFO Connect, the global community for modern finance leaders, like the ones on this podcast. We host monthly events and workshops, have a private Slack group for CFOs, and a one-on-one -on -one member matching program. CFO Connect membership is free, but reserved for experienced finance leaders. So if that's you, head over to cfoconnect.eu and apply to join us.
All right, I'd like to talk a little bit more about your career, uh, if we could. And I'm particularly interested in, you kind of had a pivot point where you moved into SaaS and tech. Mm -hmm. Could you yeah. uh, tell us about that sort of moment and, and I don't know, what brought you to SaaS and why you've stayed? Yeah. So after business school, I mean, I spent most of my time in a company called IGN, which I enjoyed very much. It's um, It was a place where I just got to do a lot. I could I start the function there. We did six M&A transactions in like four and a half years. We eventually sold ourselves. So um, I took a little bit of break after that. I actually went to Europe. I went to Europe and, and spent like about, you know, six weeks there and really thought about what I wanted to do, you know, next. And it was, I think it was about 2013. And, you know, Andreessen had just two years before had, had their big manifesto. Andreessen is a premier venture capital firm here in the Valley, talked about, you know, software aiding the world. And, and so a lot of people were talking about that. And so I really, I had done an internship um, at SAP, you know, back when I was in business school, but I immediately saw the power of um, SaaS. And mm -hmm. so really kind of just sort of studied it, um, looked at it, understood that it was, um, it was just a great opportunity and just started looking at different companies um, and decided that this was sort of like where I probably wanted to spend the rest of my career in. And so, um, but it was really, it was, it's about the business. It's a very sort of, um, I'll say sort of efficient business and has a, and, and basically has an addressable market that's, um, I wouldn't say unlimited, but it's pretty much everywhere. So we have software in our homes, we have software in our cars, um, et cetera. And once it sort of moved to the cloud, um, it became, um, I would say just an incredible business. So that, that was the moment. And is there one piece of advice that you might give someone else, um, I, I guess, in, a, in the finance, a finance professional who's trying to find their sort of niche or their, their spark, what would you tell them? So I think it's, I think it's two, I think it's two things. I think, first of all, I always tell people when they ask like career advice, I think you have to know what you enjoy, first mm. of all, and then what you're also sort of good at. So I think, I think it's, I think it's sort of two things. And once you have those two pieces, I think it's talking to a lot of people, um, doing a lot of research and reading. Mm. Um, and then once you start doing that, I, I do think um, it kind of ends up sort of coming to you. And that's what I did. You know, I went and I talked to prior bosses. I talked to a lot of people that were in the, in the industry. And then a, a picture usually emerges. It's a little bit more of an art sort of versus um, a science. And particularly in finance, you know, of course, we're going to be looking at um, numbers, but it's also important to understand, I'll say sort of, you know, those are sort of the hard facts, but also sort of the, the, the sort of softer facts also of, are these people I want to work with every single day? Um, and is this something that's really going to help me be really passionate? Um, I knew that software was going to sort of change the world and be everywhere. And so that for me was sort of the passion part of it. What are your key pieces of advice for early stage SaaS CFOs? Yeah, I think um, the biggest piece of advice is choose your investors wisely. I think those those early investors can really, you know, really, um, you know, help you and really help shape your business and, and who you have on your board. And that's literally probably the big, the, I think, best piece of advice I can give you. Luckily for all of you who are at young companies, there's a lot of uh, you know, money out there, especially in this market. So I, I think that you can be 
really picky um, as you are um, as you are sort of courting investors or they're courting you rather. But I think um, I think getting the right people in to really help you uh, is probably the biggest piece of advice I can give you. Right. That's really thinking of investors as much as mentors as uh, people with the purse strings, I, I guess. Yes, it's both. You know, you'll always have, I think, you know, your sort of personal mentors, but to have a board with really savvy investors that can also open doors for you, but it's, have done this, you know, yeah. ideally, you know, many, many times, um, as well as sort of independent advisors who have maybe built companies, I think can really help you sort of in the journey. Excellent. Thank you. All right. I would like to talk a little bit about leadership because I know it's something that you are very passionate about. Um, so first off, just a big, broad question. How do you define your leadership style? I'll tell you what I aim for. Um, what I aim for is to really lead with wisdom. And so, you know, what that means is um, to lead with compassion, to lead with empathy. Um, and, you know, and even when there are mistakes and I, I, I make them, you know, to really self-reflect and, and be self-aware of like how that happened and then remedy it, you know, as much as possible. Um, I think my team would say I'm very direct. I'm pretty sure they would say that. Um, but I think we can all be, and then they're frankly direct with me as well, which, which I like. So I think that constant loop when it's done in a safe space can be um, really helps with trust mm. and enables trust um, as well. And, um, and I am their biggest supporters. I mean, I'm very fortunate to have an incredible team across the board. And so, um, you know, they hope they should and hopefully know. And I ask on a very regular basis of like, you know, what they need, not just, you know, work wise, but also just long range professionally wise. Um, I always say that they should be taking me out of um, a job. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy, I'm happy for them to do that, you know, down the road. Um, and, um, and of course, you know, especially as we saw in COVID times, oftentimes work and personal sort of, you know, mix. And so um, I, I'd like to think that they know I'm sort of there if they, if they need help in, in that respect as well. I really like you mentioned the, uh, you used the word direct, which I think is something that's so um, underrated a lot of the time because we put a lot of emphasis, rightly, on empathy and on caring, and we don't necessarily um, recognize the fact that you can really be empathetic and care for someone by telling them exactly uh, what they can do to improve or how they can help you or how you can help them, but actually just by stating things rather than, um, I don't know, sugarcoating everything and working around the edges. Uh, I really like that as a leadership trait. Yeah, and, you know, and I think we can also think of it as being actually incredibly empathetic in, in the mm. way that um, it does sort of help them. It helps all of us sort of get better. I think it's just often how it's delivered. You know, it, it has to be delivered, of course, in a respectful way, in a kind way. And then we brush it off. You know, we brush it off and we we keep going and doing the best um, that, that we can. Um, and it's much better to talk through it and then then it just kind of lingering on. It doesn't really help team dynamics. So it's just, it's better for everybody that we just sort of talk through it, mm. figure out what's the best course of action um, and sort of keep getting better. And that makes us all feel a lot better. Could you tell us about the human first leadership movement, please? 
Yes, it's one of my favorite things to talk about. Um, <laughs> I can't, I definitely can't take credit. You know, that was um, a, a term coined by our CEO, Nick Mehta. Um, and that was, um, it's, we'd like to think it's definitely a, a movement um, as, as uh, so it's, it's something that, you know, his, his idea was that if we treat everybody um, in a human first way with humanity, essentially a lot of the qualities I sort of talked about that um, it will help us win in business. And so that's essentially our business, our, our mission statement um, mm -hmm. to win in business by being human first. And so practically and tactically what that means is as we um, work with our customers, um, we maintain our humanity, and then they trust us more. Then we under then they'll they'll tell us more, and then we can help their business more. We help their business; they do better. Then they are advocates for us. It works internally as well, you know, with our employees. If we have we address everything with um, humanity as well, um, they feel better. There's a lot more trust. We can have those direct conversations. We work better as a team. Everyone feels great because we're doing really well as a team. And so it becomes this sort of self-perpetuating um, mechanism. And in fact, you know, when we did do the majority investment, you know, what I really respected was, you know, Nick said, well, this, this deal matters because it shows we can win in business first by being human first. Um, mm -hmm. And I just love that he, he said that, you know. Um, so, yes, it's definitely central to everything we do. And uh, the last question before we move to Q and A, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've we've we've basically discussed this a lot, but where what is the place for finance leadership as a member of the senior leadership of a company? Like, what what does a company need from their finance from its finance leaders compared with maybe what it will get from the CEO, the chief revenue officer, the chief product officer, etc.? Yeah. So I think the main thing is a finance person is usually one of the few people that is looking at the business cross-functionally. Mm. And I think that's its best asset. I mean, you see that I also run strategic programs. And one of the reasons is, be is because I actually sit across the entire business. So I think the, the most important thing that with having that knowledge is to just bring a perspective um, when we're making decisions of not just what's going on, for example, in customer success or sales, but how those decisions will affect um, the entire business and sort of bring that perspective. Um, and so then you're a thought, and so you, you know, essentially you're a thought leader, uh, you know, for the CEO, but really for everybody. And you sort of help connect the dots and just make sure nothing is forgotten when you're making one decision somewhere. So I think that is the most important role, not just for me, but I, I ask that my team also sort of play that role when they're going in and helping people make business decisions. So I think that, that, and that's what makes us very powerful in addition to just, in, in addition to running the numbers, which is also very important, but it's being that thought partner. Mm. I think as someone, as someone who, who didn't study finance, doesn't have a financial background, yeah. hearing from the finance leaders of companies is always so, um, you, you just learn at such a fast rate because I don't have this, you know, fund, uh, foundation that I might have in a lot of other things. And I think that's true for actually probably the majority of employees in companies. They won't have come from finance backgrounds and even things that seem simple and kind of obvious when just explained, like, here's why we're making these financial decisions. It, it's actually quite empowering to understand the strategy behind the business. And it's, I think, probably quite easy as something, it's quite an easy thing for a finance team to give to the other teams in the, in the company. 
And I love that, you know, because depending upon the person, um, frankly, numbers can be a little bit intimidating. Mm. And so I think part of our job is with, you know, leading with wisdom and, and being human first is to make things, I think, you know, simple um, and easily digestible and understand the story sort of behind it. Mm. We have a, a really nice question, another broad one, so we can go anywhere we want with this. What is the future of FPNA? You know, it's interesting. I would say in the last year, I would say probably about two years, even before COVID, I've been asked to advise several FPNA companies, um, startups. And so, and then during COVID, we also saw finance take a really central role because everybody all of a sudden had to really pivot in terms of, you know, sort of finance. So what both of those two data points, I think, means to me is, and even, you know, as with the markets going, you know, so well, I think the finance uh, FP&A and the finance org is just going to continue to be super central. Um, I see it in my own career by, you know, also running strategic programs um, that that, you know, came to came storage to me. So I would expect FP&A to continue to become actually even more strategic and more central to the organization. Um, and as as sort of we continue. Fantastic. We have another really nice question. So the question is, having recently raised our Series A, we have a two-day off-site strategy session. And I think the, the question is, as the finance director, what is your role in that two-day off-site strategy session? And how can you be of most value to, I suppose, the other leaders of the business? Good question. Well, hopefully there is, first of all, a framework you know, framework that, you know, you're going to be using um, during your strategy session. But I think the most important thing is, first of all, on knowing the most important business metrics, the vital metrics for each of the groups, as well, as well as just, just the general numbers. If you bring those to the table um, as you're working through different strategies, I think it's helpful to, you know, just have sort of that background because it just, um, you know, as we're talking through ideas, you can actually really start solidifying them with numbers. I always think that, you know, it's, um, you just need both. It's great to have sort of, uh, you know, vision and ideas, but let's also just put the numbers behind it and look at the full story and then decide how we're sort of going to move forward. So I think if, if you come with the metrics and understanding the metrics as, um, as as well as sort of you know things like the budget, um, you will bring a really unique vantage point uh, to the company, as well as what we talked about before, just understanding the full picture. So as you know, as you're talking about go-to-market strategy, you can also make sure that you know make sure that product chimes in um, into that as well. So I think those are the two big things. Wonderful. Um, okay, we have one more question, and I suspect it's going to be very difficult. With when we're thinking about raising funds in a poor place, in this example, like Malawi, but any any country that maybe is not Palo Alto, um, where the cost of capital is high, what do we think international businesses can do to lure investment? Um, I think that's really the crux of the question. Let's not worry too much about the specifics, but what can you do to attract international investment? It's a great question. You know, I think if you're able to, I would say if you're actually able to go to a nearby place where there is 
um, a lot of capital. So for example, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's London, maybe it's, you know, Dubai and talk to investors there. I think actually going to them, um, I think would be a great idea if you're able to. And actually nowadays you can probably do it, you know, via Zoom. Um, And I think what eventually is someone who's probably, um, Robert, you're probably a renegade, you know, in this, you're probably just going to have to educate them. You know, you you may end up being the person who educates um, investors on Malawi and, you know, the benefits of it. Uh, And that actually could be a really incredible and satisfying role. But just be prepared to educate a lot of people. And then you will have to be the person and demonstrate that, you know, you can help them work through a system. Um, And then the last thing I'll say is, you know, find a great, as you're educating people, like find, um, find probably the area of the world that is probably the most similar to what was Malawi, you know, maybe it was India, you know, India was a very different place, you know, many years ago, maybe it's, maybe it's a different place and help and help tell the story of how Malawi is going to be very similar to India, for example. Um, And, and I think if you can create that vision and that story uh, as well as become sort of a trusted partner and sort of navigating um, a new country, I think that could be um, really attractive to investors because remember there is a lot of capital out there and people are looking for new opportunities in new areas. They just don't know them. So if you can bring that to the table, I think that would be very valuable. Okay. And final question. What are three critical things? Let's just say what are some critical things that FP&A teams need to have to be a key pillar for a company? Well, I always say, you know, um, it's broad, but I always say the numbers have to be right because that's where that's where you get trust. You have to deliver what you say you're going to deliver, um, and then you have to bring additional value on top of it. So it's very similar to what you know we've been talking about in terms of being sort of a strategic advisor to the business, um, but also just it's about fostering trust and and that people really. Um, you know, that they, you know, that they, that you're able to actually do what you say you're going to do um, and then bring an extra, something a little bit extra that perhaps they haven't really thought about. So I, I think it's very similar to, you know, even what we do with our customers. Um, and, and if you can do that internally, you will find over time and do it in a human first way, you will find over time people are asking you and bring you to the table because they really valued your advice. What is one thing that you are reading, watching, listening to, enjoying that you think everybody else needs to know about? Oh, you know, one thing that um, we are reading and actually we're doing it as a company and it's, it's, it's about Amazon's sort of flywheel. And mm-hmm. it is a little bit, of, you know, we are actually looking at it in terms of our own planning process and figuring out what's our flywheel. And it's not, it's not even a huge, um, the what we looked at, the, I think there's a 40, there's a book book and then there's sort of the 40 page um, sort of primer on it. And um, I would encourage all of you. And it talks a little bit about what I was talking about with human first is how to create the self-perpetuating sort of mechanism. But mm-hmm. I found it useful even in my own personal life. I created one for my, for my personal, I created one for my employees as well. Um, and, um, I think it's, I think it's something that everybody should read, um, whether you're a young company or a more mature company, um, and sort of it will help guide your strategy. Excellent. Alcatandon, I want to thank you so much for the past 49 minutes. They've been incredibly insightful and informative. I'm sure everybody would agree. 
I appreciate it. I really enjoyed it as well. And um, I'm wishing everyone a lot of luck. CFO Year is brought to you by CFO Connect, the fastest growing global community for finance leaders. Find the show on Apple or Spotify or at cfoconnect.eu. Please remember to subscribe and share, and you can email podcast at cfoconnect.eu with any questions or feedback. Join CFO Connect for webinars and workshops, get our expert resources, and be a part of an exclusive Slack group just for experienced finance professionals. Just visit cfoconnect.eu. That's cfoconnect.eu.